Great to be here. Welcome to you all. Uh, can you hear me in back? Everything working fine? Good. Uh, let's start by introducing our panel tonight. To my right, a colleague of mine, Robert Robb, became an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic in 1999. His columns on public policy and politics generally appear three times a week on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. He also currently serves as a distinguished associate for the Morrison Institute at ASU. Bob Robb. In the center is Dave Weigel, political reporter for Slate, where he covers Congress, elections, voting rights, and the economy. For most of his career, starting at Reason Magazine in 2006, Weigel covered the conservative movement. He was one of the first reporters to embed with Ron Paul's presidential campaigns. Yes. All right, shout out for Ron Paul. <laughs> a few more of those tonight. Uh, and reported from the first Tea Party rallies in 2009, Dave Weigel. And to my far right, historian Michael Rubinoff has been an ASU faculty member for 17 years. He first interviewed Barry Goldwater as a little boy back in January of 1969 when Goldwater was resuming his Senate career in Washington. They met several more times over the years, including for one of the final interviews the Senator granted before his retirement in 1986. Michael Rubinoff. So before I ask these guys some questions, I have a few questions for you folks. Uh, how many people in the audience voted for Barry Goldwater at least once? Not old enough. Not old enough? OK. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Anybody vote for him in 1964? <laughs> Two in the back, wow. And any Goldwater family members in the audience tonight? No, I heard uh, Don or uh, Barry Jr. is out of town, but he was here yesterday. All right, good, so we can say whatever we want. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems we are having a libertarian moment here in the United States. Senator Rand Paul is being taken seriously as a potential candidate for president after his dad, Ron Paul, kind of cleared some of the way for, for his son. Libertarians on the right and liberals on the left see eye to eye on protecting our privacy and legalizing marijuana. It is a very appealing mix for younger voters and many others. Bob Robb, is this a moment that Barry Goldwater helped to create? Uh, I don't think there's any question uh, about that. Uh, both the historically important Barry Goldwater, who uh, wrote uh, conscious of a conservative and ran for president in 1964, um, established sort of the libertarian viewpoint uh, on economic matters uh, and uh, limited government uh, and a proper uh, sense of federalism. The later Barry Goldwater and his reaction against the religious right helped lead the way to uh, libertarianism uh, on social issues, which has formed sort of the mix that does appeal uh, to younger audiences and also to what has been historically one of the swing votes uh, in American politics, people who are economically conservative but socially progressive. I mentioned, uh, Dave, I mentioned Rand Paul at the outset. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Who do you think at the Capitol today is the real heir of Barry Goldwater. I, I do think Rand Paul is. You kind of spoiled the question for me. You know, he frames his politics in similar ways to his detriment and to his advantage. More to his advantage because I think unlike Goldwater, Paul always expresses his version of libertarianism, of, of privacy rights, of the shrinking government as a way of reaching out to voters. He, ne he never calls it extremism. He, he, it's, he thinks, he tells Republicans, fellow Republicans, that they have shrunk the party and that the only way to reach out to young people is to move away from social concerns and the things you were just talking about. Uh, he repeats some of Goldwater's mistakes because it, I, I, if you go back to his infamous, I guess still the biggest mistake he's made in politics when he got stumbled with two interviewers over whether he would have voted for the Civil Rights Act, he made exactly the same uh, mistake that Goldwater did in describing it not as something he would have opposed morally, but something that he didn't, he, did, he, he had problems with because he didn't like forcing, forcing people to do the right thing. He wanted them to have, to have the right to do that themselves. That was exactly how Goldwater put it in 64 after 
Robert Bork and, and, uh, and Warren Rehnquist made the argument to him that the Civil Rights Act was unconstitutional. So Paul is the, is the heir in a positive way, that he's figured out a lot of what, what Goldwater did. He's, he's quotable. He's, a lot of the, the politics Goldwater mastered, he's mastered, makes some of the same mistakes where he just be, he, he comes to that edge of libertarianism where he can't, he, he, he can't quite tell a voter who's curious and, and not quite sure what they believe that, that he's going to protect their rights. Is that a, a political stance? Is that what he really believes? Yeah, he, I think it is. I mean, I've, I've talked to him a lot. I remember talking to him on the 2007-2008 campaign trail, talking to him when he ran for Senate. I mean, it's, it's a sort of utopian, libertarian view of the world that is more popular than ever. I think that's more popular than when Goldwater ran. I think what we'll probably end up talking about more is that the foreign policy side of this is so much easier and more popular for Rand Paul than it was for Barry Goldwater. Uh, but I, he, he believes that, I think, as Goldwater believed, that if you just give people freedom, they're, they're going to create a more perfect society, a more fair society, than with the, when, than with the hand of government. And he hasn't made a ton of mistakes like the civil rights mistakes since then. He learned. I mean, he's been aggressive in reaching out to, group, to groups that don't vote the Republican Party, I think in part to correct that mistake, but also because he so believes that he personally is convincing and those ideas are convincing. So again, some of the same lessons as Goldwater, some of the same mistakes, more of the, more of the positive lessons, I think, have, have been imbued in Rand Paul. So Michael, say Barry Goldwater were uh, walking the halls of the Capitol today. What would he make of the place? <laughs> <laughs> He'd be disappointed. I think his problems would be stemming from the extreme partisan nature of today's Senate and gone was the collegiality that he had known when he came in in 1953. But I remember having a meeting related to Goldwater with George McGovern. And this was in 1986. And he said to me that the Goldwater who came back to Washington after 1969 was far different than the Goldwater who had been the crusading conservative senator and presidential candidate. He said he was once the most partisan of men. But he said after 64, he said something happened, and he simply became different. And that's what probably maybe is where Goldwater would differ a little bit with where he's saying things today because he wanted to get things done when he went back to Washington for his last three terms. And I think today he'd say they're not getting anything done. Well, dig a little deeper on that because I think the, the common wisdom is, you know, Carl Hayden was the workhorse, Barry Goldwater was the show horse as I was kind of rooting around. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't see too many legislative accomplishments you can link to Barry Goldwater. I could be wrong, correct me. But dig deeper into that. What, what was it that changed him? Was it the loss? Was it the defeat? Or was there something else going on? And what about that legislative piece? Well, the Goldwater biographers, and there have been a number of them, Lee Edwards and John Judas and uh, Richard Goldberg, have noted the shattering experience of the presidential campaign, where people just trashed him beyond belief, where he said, if everyone had said these things about me to me, and I believed it, I'd think I was nuts. And I think that he was changed by the tone of that campaign. And I think when he went back to Washington uh, in his last uh, 18 years back there, I think he said, I'm going to get something done. Because he had always said to people, I, it's, I went into politics to pay the rent. And he legislatively did do that at the end of his career with the changing of the command and control structure of the Pentagon with the Nichols-Goldwater Act that he sponsored with Senator Don Nichols of Oklahoma. And that changed things in the Pentagon, so it's moving far more smoothly uh, to try to integrate all the, uh, all the uh, armed services as opposed to where it stood before 1986. All right. Stay in the present. We'll go back to the past in just a minute. I also want to let you know everybody's going to have a chance to ask questions a little later on in our discussion. Today, Barry Goldwater has become almost this cuddly hero to liberals. <laughs> you know, they like his stand on abortion rights. They like his stand on gay rights. You have, in our last Senate campaign, Richard Carmona, the Democrat, trumpeted the endorsement of a Goldwater. Did the liberals have it all wrong? <laughs> there are, In general. Th there are three distinct phases of Goldwater as a um, public figure and as a politician. 
the historically important Barry Goldwater, the author of Conscious of a Conservative, the presidential candidate in 1964, uh, was uh, very much a uh, hard right uh, libertarian conservative. He advocated uh, eliminating the federal role in uh, agriculture and in education and in all social welfare uh, programs. Uh, he also was an insurgent. He, was, he, he uh, spoke scornfully and wrote scornfully about Me Too Republicanism. Uh, even though he supported Eisenhower over Taft, he referred to Eisenhower's warmed over New Dealism. Uh, and so he was hard right and he was an insurgent. He ultimately became an establishment Republican figure, probably best illustrated by his endorsement of Gerald Ford over Ronald Reagan uh, in the 1976 primary. And then at the latter part of his congressional, uh, of his senatorial career, in reaction to the rise of the social right, I mean, the, the uh, Roe v. Wade wasn't until 1973. Uh, the US Supreme Court decision striking down school prayer was in 1962. So the historically uh, important Barry Goldwater didn't really deal with those issues. And in 1980, he actually ran as a pro-life uh, candidate. Uh, it wasn't until the latter part that he developed this uh, antagonism towards the social right and its influence on the Republican Party. And then the third phrase, phase of his uh, career, rather than uh, cuddly, I would say, as <laughs> an a, a iconic curmudgeon. Uh, that, that, <laughs> cuddly that, curmudgeon. That, 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 <laughs> I don't know that anyone would have ever described Barry Goldwater as cuddly, but, uh, but he, he was a historically important figure. Uh, and uh, the American people, uh, over time, develop an affection for those uh, iconic characters, those important historical figures, uh, even if they were busy denouncing them at the time that they actually <laughs> had some degree of political importance. So they're remembering the later period. They are. The blue period of Barry Goldwater. Yeah. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael, you're a... Uh, you followed the senator's arc closely. You agree with that, that arc that Bob just laid out? Yes, I think he's nailed it. There's several phases. But if there's one thing which, if I can pick up on what, what Dave is saying, with the Rand Paul type of style, Barry Goldwater, if you heard him prior to uh, all of this through 1964, he could speak with incredible indignation and self-righteousness, which uh, was noted in The Making of the President, 1964, by Theodore H. White, where he sounded like a Old Testament type of prophet. And if anybody probably closely comes closest to that in a very, I'm going to say, calming kind of way, if you can be a calm prophet, it would be Rand Paul. And Rand Paul's type of logic, and, and builds on his father's blunt logic, um, Goldwater basically was, was plowing that ground. And people thought he was far right, and probably for his time, certainly that would be where it was. Nelson Rockefeller once said, if Goldwater is the main stream, it's a very meandering stream. <laughs> um, but there is, a, there is a remarkable similarity in style, though I think Rand Paul is a refinement of that. And it's a different age with uh, you know video being done. Anyone here can hold it in the audience. Um, whereas Goldwater. Well, he wasn't as exposed until the media got on him in 64, and then bingo, uh, we had all sorts of earthquakes and other things in the press. David, Senator Paul, the, the kinder face of libertarianism, and I also will ask you too, how does he handle the social issues? Well, going back to the way uh, you dealt with it very well, the way, way Goldwater interpreted these, I mean, the social issues didn't exist in the way they came to exist at the end of his career until I guess the first phase would be Roe versus Wade. The second would be the backlash to the Department of Education in the late 1970s and the, and the rise of evangelical right. So Rand Paul's been able to exist in a time when that's all, when the opposite has happened. And the momentum, poll numbers, all, all the factors that made social conservatism, uh, if we limit it to gay marriage, we limit it to abortion, all those that made it, uh, win it a winning issue for, for that wing of the party 
have kind of faded. And Paul, Rand Paul has won one election in 2010. Since then, you've seen you know, gay, mar gay marriage support. I should, I should do looking at the camera. <laughs> support, for, support for gay marriage. Uh, completely surging. And he's gone to states that might w decide whether to vote for him for president in the Republican primary, Republican caucuses, and say, up to you guys. We're not, we're not going to run on an amendment to the Constitution anymore that, that's, going to, uh, that's going to find this. The media happens to like that, but he's, 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 he's able to, he's, he's riding a wave that Goldwater didn't really, didn't really get, get, get to ride. He, now, with the, the media, it's, it, uh, the way that Goldwater got to deal with the media at the very end, the way that Rand Paul gets to deal with it now, that's pretty similar. I mean, the, the media coverage of Goldwater, if you look at it from the, from the 1990s, was always from the frame of a, a one Republican telling it like it was and trying to drive his party in the right position. Same way that, it's, 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 uh, that Rand Paul's able to handle it. The difference is Rand Paul's on the ascent in a Republican party that worries if it is that hard right on social issues, it can't win. Let's bring up foreign policy now, because that does seem to be a distinct difference between Goldwater and Paul. Talk about that and how Paul interprets it. Well, he, he always rejects the term isolationist. I mean, Rand, Ron Paul rejected it, too. Rand is more careful now, but like you were saying, there, there's a lot of video he's going to have to deal with if he runs for president of him really almost pre-associating his, his arguments for whether America should, what America should intervene in, why we intervene in Iraq, et cetera. Uh, he happened, but he has really taken off again on the right. I think since people turned against the war in Afghanistan, since people turned against the surveillance state, and those are developments basically from 2009 and 2013. Uh, drone warfare, when he started to talk about it, not terribly unpopular, not terribly known. He managed, he managed to describe a, a theoretical opposition to it that was the first I think a lot of Americans thought about it, which was they didn't, they were, they might have been vaguely aware that spying was happening, vaguely aware that, that drones were being used in Afghanistan, that we were drawing down our, our military there. He put it uh, in a framework that might not, I don't think if, if you were trying, if you were a Republican meeting at that time, trying to come up with the best message for the party, you probably wouldn't come up with it, with arguing to, to, to Americans that they should worry they might be targeted or spied on by this technology too. But it's become quite popular. It's actually, I've, I go to lots of Republican meetings and I've found Republican meetings, uh, conferences, conventions, things that, like that, attacking the NSA as an applause line, attacking the approach to Afghanistan as applause line. Mississippi, the primary election that, that is still rolling the Republican Party. I would go to Tea Party meetings, which were trying to overthrow a conservative senator, and they, you, at the meetings, would speak about the, har the how America shouldn't shouldn't send p people into a mission like Afghanistan again. I, that Paul has happened to emerge uh, at a time when, again, and Goldwater couldn't deal with this. Goldwater was running for president before we really escalated Vietnam. Rand Paul's <laughs> uh, emerging on the scene after. 13 years of greater intervention in the world, greater fatigue with that at home, and putting it in a way that makes sense immediately to libertarians, to the surprise of lots of people, saying it so, stating it so effectively that it becomes more popular to people who are, who are thinking about the issues the first time. What would Rand Paul, have, oh sorry, what would Barry Goldwater have made of drones, the, this national security state we seem to be living in, Bob? That's difficult. Uh, to um, discern or predict. Uh, Barry, it, let me go back to where the natural libertarian position is. And it is an isolationism. Non-interventionism is an isolationism. If you support free trade and, uh, and generous immigration, uh, which most libertarians uh, do. Uh, but there was an interruption. That, that's sort of the natural ground for libertarians in looking at the U.S. role in the world, that we should return to the founders' vision of being a peaceful trading nation. But for libertarian conservatives in the 1950s until the um, collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in the late uh, 1980s and early 1990s was that this was a different threat, uh, that uh, expansionary communism was just different and it required an aggressive U.S. response. And in fact, Barry Goldwater and libertarian conservatives of the time uh, objected to the bipartisan foreign policy of containment, 
to try to keep the Soviet Union from expanding so that it would collapse nationally, nat naturally from its own internal contradictions, and instead uh, advocated a liberation uh, approach where we should actively be trying to undermine and liberate particularly the captive nations uh, in Eastern Europe. So he was very much a pro-security, anti-communist guy. And probably facing that threat uh, would have countenanced fairly aggressive surveillance, uh, including uh, internally. But without that overwhelming threat, my guess is that his instinctive belief in individual freedom uh, in, pri in privacy, and in Chesterton's uh, phrase, our right to all be our own potty selves, um, <laughs> that, that today he would be where Rand Paul is. Uh, but if the security threat he felt was serious enough, and many conservatives believe that's true of terrorism, uh, he might come to a different conclusion. We're going to go back in time now. And part of the, the fun for me in preparing for this was I read Conscience of a, Conser of a Conservative for the first time. Uh, and I also found this headline. This is from Barry Goldwater's election to the Senate in 1952 when he defeated then Senate Majority Leader Ernest McFarland, the Democrat. And this is the headline from the Washington Post. Air Age Hustler topples Majority Leader. There it is. Air Age, he's called an Air Age Hustler. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what they meant by hustler. It refers to the slow-talking, slow-moving McFarland and Senator Goldwater, the hustler kind of politician. Fast-moving, fast-thinking, modern in the air age sense, 19, 1952. One of Barry Goldwater's signature achievements in Arizona was bringing us the Republican Party we have today to some extent, wasn't it, Michael? Yes. He was air age with Anna Frommiller's campaign in 1950. Goldwater flew Howard Pyle of Tempe around the state, and they edged out Anna Frommiller. That was not an age when people in Arizona were inclined to vote for women governors, which shows just how far we have come since 1950. <laughs> but he did the same when he ran for uh, U.S. Senate in 52. But one thing which a lot of people don't uh, probably realize is Goldwater was already well known from his uh, Grand Canyon camping movie that he did in color. And he had shown it all around the state right before World War II, so that when he ran in 52, um, people had known of Barry Goldwater. Arizona was a small population back then. And so he seemed to be very techy. And of course, we know of his uh, hobby in uh, doing ham radios and flying almost every jet aircraft that was uh, in the US fleet up to the time he retired. So he was an, that was actually a fairly apt way that the Washington Post, I think, characterized him. At a very early time, he was 43 years old. And talk about his impact on the Republican Party, because he and a, a relatively small group in, in Phoenix helped to remake the party. What did they see here? What did they do to make the Rep Republican Party the force that it's become here? Well, his family background was that his Uncle Morris was a Democrat in the Arizona legislature. But Goldwater underwent some type of a transition as he became a young man, goes into World War II and comes out. And then when the Phoenix City Charter was redone after the war, he joins on the team and is elected to the city council with uh, Harry Rosenzweig. And through a, just a very interesting way of noting the fact that Phoenix uh, had been run rather corrupt, they all of a sudden made it very efficient. And they did it with you know, low taxes and creating a more favorable business climate. And along with people like Eugene Pulliam, of uh, Bob's uh, pre-current boss, and uh, <laughs> publisher Very of the Republic. Great. Publisher of the Republic way back when, uh, along with Walter Bimson, and a whole coterie of people who had some vision, uh, developers, John F. Long, uh, and among others, who had this vision for a phoenix and a very streamlined post-war setting. And Goldwater caught that spirit. It meant, uh, you know, get government off our backs, lean and mean. And I don't know if that was so much libertarian-esque or conservative. Goldwater would prefer to use the word conservative, which he basically is going to wrap around uh, by the time you get to uh, 1960. So that, yes, he transforms the Republican Party. It's going to become almost an image of, him own, of his own self 
and virtually you're gonna have all these little gold waters who get elected behind him. Paul Fannin will become a governor, U.S. Senator Jack Williams, and it's like a small club which basically chose its uh, officials and so forth in the vestry rooms of the Trinity Episcopal <laughs> Cathedral downtown where Barry Goldwater was baptized in 1909. One of John Rhodes's favorite stories uh, was uh, about Barry and Harry Rosenzweig uh, coming to try to talk him into running for Congress. Uh, and as John would relate the story, he told them, but I don't want to go to Washington. And they said, oh, don't worry about it, John. You won't win. <laughs> uh, and one of, the, one of the interesting things about that period, the post-war period, Phoenix almost doubled in size. So they got, I think, population-wise, not double, rose 50%, I think, from about half a million to three quarters or so. Uh, and all those new residents became Republicans. Well, well, well not, all, not, not, not really. The, the, did, they, they, did they plant the seeds there? Oh, they definitely yeah. planted the seeds. I mean, Barry Goldwater and, Ho and Harry Rosenzweig rewrote the political history of Arizona. But Republicans didn't actually uh, gain more registrants than Democrats in Arizona until the mid-1980s. Uh, so Arizona was voting Republican far quicker uh, than it actually became uh, registered Republican as the plurality party. Okay. I want to take a closer look at Goldwater's politics, and let's start with the book, Conscience of a Conservative. And I want to stop with that one word, conservative, because you said something, Michael, that made me think. We're talking about Barry Goldwater as a libertarian. This wasn't a bunch of libertarians getting together. Was it to help get, put him on the national stage? Um, in those days, uh, libertarian and conservative were nearly synonymous. Uh, the conservatism that was concocted in the uh, hallways, the editorial rooms of National Review, had a very libertarian orientation uh, with a belief uh, that a spiritual life was key to, the, um, of, to a successful polity. And in Conscious of, the, of a Conservative, uh, Goldwater echoed uh, that sentiment. There were um, an, an atheistic uh, economic libertarianism that dissented from that, but it was very much a minority. It wasn't until the development of the social issues uh, over the 1960s and 1970s that the split between libertarians and, conservatism, and conservatives uh, became pronounced and that the terms ceased to be almost synonymous. Now, here was the interesting thing about reading Conscience of a Conservative. I thought to myself, you know what? If you had torn the cover off the book, gave it to me without telling me who wrote it, when it was written, I would have said, gee, except for the military part, this reads like a Tea Party manifesto. It's almost word for word with what we hear today from the Tea Partiers. Am I wrong on that? Not at all. And in the notion that Barry Goldwater didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left Barry Goldwater. Uh, ignores the historically important Barry Goldwater, who did advocate getting the federal government entirely out of the fields of education and agriculture and welfare. In the conscience of, the conser of, of a conservative, uh, he expressed the point of view that what the Constitution means isn't just up to uh, the US Supreme Court to decide, which is one of the uh, beliefs of the Tea Party that is uh, routinely denounced as showing how out of touch they are. So uh, yes, I, I think that, that the historically important Barry Goldwater uh, has been lost in the remembrances of the iconic curmudgeon that he became later on in life. What do you think about that? Are the tea par is the Tea Party the true heir of Barry Goldwater, Dave? Uh, in, in Another way that I keep mentioning negative ways that, that lessons have been learned, positive ways. In a negative way, in the popular imagination of a, of a conservative activist, I try to you know, mind meld with as many as I possibly can. The, the Goldwater run broke the back of the uh, Rockefeller Republicans. They never quite built up that power again. They, they still haven't. And they, they, I think the way George Will always puts it is, R Goldwater won the election, but it took 16 years to count the votes, meaning he built 
he, he built up to Reagan. What that leaves out is we were talking about how this could, uh, conscious conservative could have been a Tea Party manifesto. Well, it doesn't mention the things that don't exist because uh, they didn't exist yet because Barry Goldwater hadn't, hadn't run and led a landslide that brought in all of the great society Democrats that gave us Medicare, that gave us Medicaid, that gave us all the urban programs, that gave us a, a, larger, a larger government that even Reagan and, and George Bush, who didn't try quite, quite as hard as Reagan, were not able to un undermine. Uh, so one thing the Tea Party took from Goldwater is that if you, you one, take over the party, party structure, and they can do that easier than ever with, uh, with the, 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 I, the way money and politics works now, the way you can win a primary with reaching out to outside groups instead of to even taking over the party. And two, you're going to be proven right in the end, even if you, even if you lose a couple Pyrrhic victories. I think they made that mistake again in 2009 by opposing Obamacare completely, hoping that they could just grind it down the Senate, failing to made that mistake. And a couple of elections, people focus a lot on elections that have been lost because a Tea Party candidate won the primary. More than that, just the, I think the complete resistance to, to, to growing government. On the one hand, they've shifted the debate to the right. On the other, they've made the same mistake that was made in 1964 where you, you, you put, I, I hate using <laughs> poker metaphors, but I can't think of a better one. You, you go all in and then you lose. You say to voters, we, we, the 2012 election is a referendum Obamacare. If we win it, we're gonna repeal it. You, you don't win, you don't repeal it. The ratchet effect of the, of this, of the, of the growth of the state was not halted by, by a Goldwater style campaign. And it's not being halted by a Tea Party style campaign. I wanna go back to some of the more troubling parts of his record. Uh, Goldwater fell in with John Bergers. And it's unclear to me why, he's, why he fell in with them. At one point he said, you know what, I need them politically. Uh, opposed the Civil Rights Act, I pro, uh, didn't, didn't agree with Board, Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, what does that tell us about the man, Michael? Mm. I was at the Gerald Ford Library doing some research on Ronald Reagan back in 2002. And I found a note that Barry Goldwater had handwritten to Gerald Ford in the fall of 75. And it was very short. And he simply said, I worry about some of these people who are backing Reagan. He said, some of them are absolutely nuts. And I know that because they were backing me in 1964. So he at least could take a long view uh, <laughs> of who his supporters had been. And if you do read his comments on the John Burt Society from the, the 60s, he was reluctant to basically just uh, throw them aside. Dennison Kitchell, who was one of his closest friends, was an active member of the John Burt Society. But it's true that he's going to back away from them after the presidential campaign. It seemed as if the John Burt Society was in one direction and Barry Goldwater was in another, and it might have been that he needed them probably in the caucuses that um, had helped get his nomination in 64, but that they also discarded him for other heroes uh, after 1964. George Wallace would loom big for them in 1968 and beyond. And so I think that that was sort of the parting of the ways, as, along with the fact that um, you mentioned the Civil Rights Bill, which he opposed on constitutional grounds. And I'm not sure if history has proven him right or wrong. It seems as if possibly he might have been on the losing edge of history in terms of how that has all played itself down. But he was on the right edge of so many other things that I don't think we should begrudge him on this. I actually had a student once who, uh, when I was talking about Goldwater, said that a professor told her that Barry Goldwater was a segregationist. And I corrected her and I said, I want you to know something. I'm probably one of the few people you're ever going to meet who knew Barry Goldwater a little bit. And he was an integrationist. And his whole record up through 1964 was one of supporting uh, equal rights for African Americans. And that's something, unfortunately, that got lost in the 64 vote. And that's really interesting because there was the political and those votes he took and also the personal. And there was a school here, I believe, he supported that, I don't know if you correct me if I'm wrong, but was that one of the, one of the first to integrate? Uh, George Washington Carver, which was in the Phoenix Union High School District. It still is used as a district office down south of Phoenix. But he also contributed to the Phoenix Urban League. He helped uh, integrate the Arizona National Guard right after World War II because he was in the Air National Guard. And Goldwater Stores hired blacks. And Phoenix had a long uh, segregated history. A lot of people don't realize that. 
And Goldwater was at the cutting edge again with the end of World War II when he was on the city council and other civic affairs. Okay, I think we're getting close to time for audience questions. Uh, am I right, Tanya or uh, Dulce? We've got 10 more minutes. 10 more minutes, okay. <laughs> okay, I'm like a comedian who's out of material. <laughs> Don't worry, a lot more where that came from. Uh, let's, let's put Barry Goldwater in Arizona in 2010. One of the, uh, for, I know we have all these thought experiments tonight, but SB 1070, where would Barry Goldwater have come down on that? Again, I, it, the immigration uh, issue uh, developed in the 1990s uh, and in the 2000s. Uh, there was bipartisan support for the 1986 uh, immigration reform. It was led by uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Alan Simpson was one of the co-authors of it. Um, and so I don't think you can project uh, where uh, Goldwater would have been on it. My suspicion is, is that he would be on the side of Arizona as a welcoming place, uh, embracing its uh, Latino uh, heritage, uh, and would be uh, troubled uh, about that. But on the other hand, I don't know that he would be indifferent uh, to the effects of uh, illegal immigration on local governments. And his strong sense of federalism would have rejected, or at least argued against, the notion that this is exclusively a federal prob problem uh, which local governments are powerless to do anything about. So I think there's cross-currents. Michael, what do you think about that? I would have to agree. I think Barry Goldwater would have said we should be welcoming. But I think he also would have said that you know the state has its own rights, which I think he felt very deeply about. I think he would have been badly conflicted as I think with a lot of issues, although I, I have to say, looking at things nationally, I think he would have thought that the uh, Obamacare would have been just one of the most, he would say, a god-awful thing to put on the country. Um, but I think that if you look at state issues, I think he would be tortured back and forth, and certainly on immigration, I think he would have probably have had some sympathy for his, I mean, you have to simply know that, I mean, this is a man, as I think everyone knows, he, he was very proud of his family's pioneering background from Europe. And I think he would say we have to be a welcoming society, not one that is exclusionist. We're in the political season, Dave. And one of the things that I think one of the lessons of Goldwater's candidacy or legacies of that candidacy was the thought that he helped to give the Republicans that Southern strategy and helped turn the South Republican. Is he responsible for that? Was Lyndon Johnson responsible for that in kind of a backhanded way? He, you know, actually, Republicans were cracking the South before in 1864. Eisenhower was able to pull out some states bef way before that when L. Smith ran on the Democratic ticket for kind of nasty anti-Catholic reasons, Republicans were able to crack the South. It was really uh, Nixon who was able to, to run in 19, you know, campaign in 1966, run in 1968 as the centrist Republican correction to Goldwater who perfected that. Nixon and Agnew perfected the actual, the actual outreach to the South that appealed to what Goldwater, I don't think, was trying, was casting that vote appealing to. Again, Goldwater had constitutional arguments that he, he, were, you know, he asked for, he reiterated, he believed in, he, he believed in states' rights without, without as many connotations. The Nixon people understood all the connotations, and they really turned it red, and I, I I don't think you can pin that as much on him, despite that, 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 one, that one vote. It was really other Republicans who saw how rapidly the South could, had, had fallen away then and took advantage over successive cycles. You, 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 were, you were talking about the way Goldwater actually, actually felt. Yes, he was replaced by strategists who, who lacked some of those better intentions. Let's do a uh, round, Paul, kind of once around. Does this guy have a chance? if he decides to run for president? I, I think he may be an election cycle or two premature. Um, I, I, I do believe that there is uh, a growing sense of government's demonstrated incompetence on a wide number of uh, avenues. In 2016, the Social Security Disability Fund 
will run out of IOUs to redeem. Uh, and the Congress is going to have to decide to, what it's going to do about that. If nothing happens, then Social Security's disability benefits will be reduced pro rata. So uh, we will come face to face, beginning in 2016, uh, with the uh, inadequate financing of the modern welfare state. The Medicaid, uh, the, the Medicare Hospital Insurance uh, Trust Fund will face the same problem in the early 2020s. So the country is going to have to sort of face this moment, uh, which I think will open the door for someone who has a more radical view of the extent to which we need to cut back the size and scope of government. And the, the, the march of time, I think, uh, would stand well for acceptance of his uh, non-interventionist foreign policy. Uh, and for his more socially progressive views within a Republican primary. So my, my guess is he's premature in 2016, uh, but 2020, 2024, someone with his set of views, and I think he's very skillful at articulating them, uh, particularly compared to his father, um, uh, has a chance to seize that moment. We have some things to confront that I think Rand Paul is in a good position to articulate a direction that may be attractive over the course of time. You agree with that? And are there any other Rand Paul types on the Republican bench right now? The, the Paul movement, the liberty movement, I think is, is what they, is, I know what they prefer to be called because it's a bit more general. They've, they're cultivated people and importantly, uh, the establishment's not been able to defeat the people they're cultivating. Justin Amash, a congressman from Michigan, is being challenged by uh, a, ch a candidate endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce, and he's just he's destroying him. And Amash's big achievement of 2013 was almost passing an amendment that would have defunded the NSA's metadata collection. Turns out that's incredibly popular, and you can't just run against the guy by saying he doesn't bring enough money to, money to the district. Um, there will be people in Rand Paul's wake, and what you were just saying about the ideas being adapted, I think that's more likely than a, than a candidate like Rand Paul, who, when you hit the white the white heat of a presidential vetting process, I don't think is going is going to hold up. Not for anything people don't know. I just think that he, you, you've seen people who are very confident uh, or, and successful at other levels, Rudy Giuliani's people like that, uh, melt a little bit when they're in the frankly sometimes stupid. Uh, barrage of questions you get as a presidential candidate, then the pressure you get as a candidate, the questions about your background, the questions about your associations. He's come up, I mean, he, less so than his father. I mean, his, his father has talked to the John Birch Society. He hasn't, just as, just as frankly, you know, David and Charles Koch's father was a John Birch Society member, they're not. Uh, he's gotten further from that, but those are the sorts of associations that, remember, almost for a moment there, the church Barack Obama went to almost took him out. I think there will be problems, yeah, really, and I think there'll be problems with Rand, the libertarian movement as it produced Rand Paul with the way he deals with certain questions. Who knows what's going to come up that he could fumble? I remember a time when we were covering Rick Perry's 20-point lead in a presidential primary, and he blew four questions, based one about immigration, <laughs> frankly, that, that destroyed him. I think, but what you were saying, Someone with those ideas is, 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 is going to win because not just are they more popular, but there is a bigger donor class that believes in these things. And the, the rising uh, millennial vote, it, when you ask them if they think government can, can hack it, they don't. I mean, they, they've seen government the post 9-11 and the Obamacare. That is, if they're not necessarily a pure Republican vote, they're a vote that's sympathetic to somebody who makes the Rand Paul case. Mm. Final thought, Michael. Well, I'm going to build on what Dave just said, and also I agree with, with Bob. <clears throat> the issue that I think is going to come out is that Rand Paul has a base which he picked up from his father, and it was heavily subscribed to by younger people at universities and colleges, and it's reminiscent of how Barry Goldwater was so well received when the Young Americans for Freedom was first created in 1960 and helped propel him uh, through 1964, and there's a real similarity. Uh, younger people are far more idealistic, and they don't have patience for, let's say, the establishment Republican parties. 
uh, yes, you too can become precinct committeemen, and after uh, they hit Social Security, you can finally be chairman of the party in most uh, district organizations. <laughs> um, that's not what these young people are subscribing to, and Ron Paul uh, had done this when he was a congressman, and his son is doing that. And this is actually what helped propel Goldwater, who was a minority view in the Republican Party, so that that minority view captured the party and became the majority. And I think that's the plan that has to be looked at. And just as Bob said, it might be too soon in 2016, but you change the temper of the times, times and you might see a major difference. You just made me remember that Hillary was a Goldwater girl yes, when she was in her <laughs> 20s or? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Rubinoff, Dave Weigel, Bob Robb, we're gonna keep talking with your questions. We now have time to take questions from all of you. There are two of us going around with microphones. Uh, we are recording this. It'll be up on our website first thing tomorrow morning. So we do ask that you say your first and last name before your question. <coughs> C-SPAN is also here, wanted to remind you. Um, and Tanya's got the first question right here. Uh, well, it's not exactly a question. It's a statement in a way. Uh, my father, Judge Renzel Jennings, ran against Barry Goldwater for the Senate many years ago. And one of the most striking things about Goldwater, whom I knew as a little girl, uh, was how amazing that he could be so accepting of somebody with the opposite political views. My father was way to the left and he was way to the right, and yet they had these just amiable, wonderful discussions. And uh, he, he really, to me, was a terrific man, even though my views and his were different. When he ran for the Senate, Arizona, you just, all you had to be at that time was a Republican. So I don't know why my father even decided to run, but anyway, that's my story. Can, can, I, can I ask a question of Michael? And that's one of the most interesting parts of the Goldwater run in 64 is he was hoping to run against Jack Kennedy. Yes. What would describe that relationship? Why was Goldwater that? and Kennedy had known each other very well, and they were friends, friendly rivals, and they respected each other. But what you're exactly speaking to is a different time in Arizona. You had almost every, it was like an extended family. And so people knew each other. And those bonds, and it was shared by the senator with his later colleague, Dennis DeConcini, because Goldwater knew DeConcini was from a longtime Southern Arizona family. Same thing with Morris Udall. And one thing that united all these folks was to pass the Central Arizona Project, which was the major activity of a bipartisan nature. And this is where Goldwater was effective. He might have been a show horse, but you needed that show horse against Wayne Aspinall of Colorado, who was trying to kill it. And so Goldwater, along with Hayden, who had seniority, they were helping to, to make that thing work. And I think that's exactly the type of culture from which your father uh, that you are describing. Next question in the front. My name is Roy Miller, and <clears throat> my question has to do with the word libertarian. I, I am myself a libertarian, as I understand the term libertarian Republican, but I remember many years ago the word liberal had a free market connotation to it, and it was taken over, and now most of us that believe in small government don't like the word liberal. So I'm wondering if this new word libertarian is going to last and you think it will consistently be represented by a very limited government viewpoint. Um, I, I do, and, and to follow up on what you, I mean, classically, classical liberal uh, philosophy from John Stuart Mills and, and John Locke and, and others did carry the liberal term, and, uh, and around the rest of the world it still does. Uh, Neoliberal uh, in most of the world describes someone who has a free market uh, orientation. I think libertarianism will stick uh, as a political identifier in American politics because it represents a conservatism that is at least uh, distinct from and often in conflict with social conservatism. So I now believe that the conservative movement has split in a way that wasn't true uh, during the days of the historically important Barry Goldwater, and therefore there's a utility in the name to describe a point of view that has some distinction. I'd just add quickly that one of the great surprises of Republican politics last 10 years is that it was Ron Paul who made libertarianism more popular. That was not seen by the circles I traveled in Washington, libertarian circles, 
he wasn't seen as the best vessel to bring to bring that, bring that forward. It was actually the Kochs had spent thirty years funding think tanks. Uh, famously, everyone at the Cato Institute was, were, had to wear ties because they were worried they didn't. The libertarians sounded crazy, so they looked more serious and made more serious arguments, lobbied a little bit harder. They were taken seriously, and the fact that Ron, uh, Ron Paul ran for president uh, and built a following against the Iraq War and drafted countless young libertarians that really surprised people. The fact that he made it more popular. He's a very flawed politician. A lot of the ways we were kind of talking around before. Um, so I, I think. Given that Ron Paul and Rand Paul have been able to build the ranks, I think as long as there's not an external threat like communism that Americans really feel, then yes, libertarianism is going to keep burgeoning, no matter who the spokesman is. Yeah. <laughs> Next question here on your right. Hi, my name is Paul Avalar. I have a question about uh, Goldwater, the Civil Rights Acts, and uh, the recent uh, uh, con or conflicts we had here in Arizona. Uh, Goldwater famously voted against the 64 Act because he didn't like the federal government imposing non-discrimination requirements on private business. But he had supported civil rights acts previously, including in 63. Uh, is, that, is there a tension in that? I mean, we've seen in Arizona recently there was a bill proposed that would allow uh, discrimination uh, based on religious views by private businesses, which uh, you know, resulted in a lot of, uh, a lot of conflict. Is that a tension with Goldwater? Is that a tension in libertarianism with its base? Is there some way that Goldwater speaks to how to, how to, to get through those, those conflicts? I, I think it represents a losing argument um, by libertarians. The, the point of view that Barry Goldwater expressed, which is um, there's nothing in the Constitution that gives the federal government the authority uh, to tell someone who owns a private business whom he has to serve uh, and, and, and prevent him from making decisions as to whom he serves um, is, a, is a purebred libertarian point of view. Uh, it's lost. Um, the uh, field of commerce is now pretty universally regarded as, in some respects, public space, uh, and uh, that government can indeed regulate uh, the kind of interactions that people have in that public space, uh, including uh, prohibiting what's considered invidious discrimination uh, in commerce. And the reaction to Senate Bid Bill 1062, I think, reflects the fact that the libertarians have simply lost that argument. Next question in the front. My name is Albert Salosa. Uh, there are two big trends in the 21st century. I think one of them is, of course, terrorism. And then the other one is the massive um, data collection by the United States government of, of data from private individuals and corporations. How do you think Barry Goldwater will approach this particular two issues as they relate to each other? I'll jump on that. First, on the terrorism, I think he would have said, we're going to win the war, because it would be consistent with how he viewed the war against communism, which was not to contain it, but which is to basically defeat it as the greatest enemy on earth. And he would probably say, if he were here today, that the terrorist threat was similar. They attacked us. Secondly, on the metadata collection, he probably would have said the government has no business snooping. Now, he would have been tortured probably a little bit with the fact that the government is obviously getting bigger to acquire that. But I think, you know, he would have probably have said, in taking that more libertarian thread, um, we don't need to have the government spying on you and knowing every last thing about you. That was one thing that flavored his rhetoric when he was running for president. And that's what, and, and we'd have that earlier Goldwater who was so self-righteous. And I think he would have felt very uncomfortable with the government snooping around finding everything there was about everybody, including knowing who they're calling on the telephone. Next question here on your upper right. Hello, my name is John Laurie. I've been a registered Republican for almost three decades now. I was also a voting national delegate for Ron Paul at the 2012 uh, RNC. Uh, given that the Republican Party, for the first time, is outnumbered in the state of Arizona by independents, Rather than asking whether Goldwater libertarianism is dead, I would like to pose to the panel whether the Republican Party is dead without libertarianism. 
Let's see. I, in some states, I think, they, they can't win without being libertarians. In the, basically the entire Northeast, I don't think a Republican who is not libertarian on social issues, who is not opposed to the NSA, I don't, they shouldn't even bother running. They're so conservative, they can't win. Uh, the, and if you look at the, I keep mentioning the Chamber of Commerce because they spend a lot of money. They're also kind of a good overarching exa uh, example of what, what you would, you would call Rockefeller Republicanism, Republicanism years ago. They're not actually trying to moderate the Republican Party. They're kind of go, going along with the libertarian, uh, with, with libertarian demands. They are resolutely for the repeal of Obamacare. They are resolutely anti-tax. The, the differences they have or they want, they're more into rent-seeking for businesses, right? And I think they always will be because they're the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, but I don't, think you, I don't think you're wrong because if you look at this, the, the problem Republicans have is one demographic. They can't, they're in a state like this, I mean, you look at how close the Senate race, more than the presidential race was in 2012, they, that, that shocked them. You look at the, the House races they lost. They, that's because of Hispanic voters turning against them in massive numbers here, Colorado, states they, they didn't think about. And two, young people who are not socially conservative and they don't care about rent seeking. So I think I think you're basically I think you're basically right. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna disagree with you. It's what part of the of the liberty movement and libertarianism they decide to allow into the party. I think that's what the fight is. The certainly the I don't think you know Mitt Romney actually is everyone who loses a race that people thought they could win is blamed. I don't think that it, it, he it, it was that so much that he was a bad candidate. But it's true he completely failed to reach out to people who, if they always vote against Republicans, they can't win again. How do you reach out to Hispanics and younger people? Some of that's going to be libertarianism. Certainly, board, the Cato-style uh, libertarianism on immigration reform, that's going to be more appealing than what Mitt Romney ran on. It didn't quite work for McCain, but he did better, he did better than Rom Romney did. And that's a struggle. That's not, that's not what uh, a lot of elements of the Republican Party stand for. And yeah, they're going to lose in half the country if, if they don't change. We have time for one last question, but before we move on, I want to take this time to thank all of our panelists for taking a piece of their time to be here with us tonight. I'd also like to thank our co-presenters for this evening, Arizona State University, and I also want to thank uh, uh, C-SPAN for joining us and recording tonight's event, and lastly, all of you for coming and joining us tonight. And Oh, oh and our reception. Happy hour is going to start momentarily. It'll be uh, straight behind the exit sign right behind you in the patio. Please join us for a drink. You can speak further with our featured guests who will all be there. And now our last question. We, you spoke an awful lot tonight about what Barry Goldwater thought about the expansion of government and the information they know and a lot of questions about the NSA. What about corporations and other organizations that spend a lot of time? You asked us to tweet. First thing Twitter asked me is, where are you? <laughs> so, you know, to that and also, uh, all the campaign finance and donations that come in that, as David had mentioned, you know, the big donors are going to vote go this way. So speak to that. In conscience of a conservative, uh, Goldwater inveighs rigorously against um, the union movement and actually advocates uh, federal laws restricting uh, unions' political activities. Uh, and uh, among the things that he says in that book is that neither unions nor corporations should be permitted uh, to donate uh, or participate in political activities, that they are intended as economic uh, organizations and uh, shouldn't be exercising political rights. Um, and he also speaks approvingly of antitrust laws. Now, the extent to which that was genuine or just a way to make his anti-union screed uh, more broadly palatable, I'm not sure. He was very friendly with, he was an icon of the uh, Arizona business community before he became a uh, politician. Uh, he was uh, comfortable with large businesses. Uh, the general libertarian economic position is that uh, threats of entry are sufficient uh, to uh, guard against um, uh, trusts and, and, uh, and restraints against trade and, and are suspicious of antitrust laws. 
uh, and I think is, uh, and certainly the point of view uh, that corporations have protected free speech rights is now pretty standard fare uh, in libertarian uh, and conservative uh, uh, philosophy. Um, so my, my guess is he would not be as quick uh, to put restraints on business in terms of its collection of data and its use of data as he would the federal government. And with that, thank you so much. We'll see you outside.